Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to study the word, walking by the Spirit rather than according to the sin nature. And so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer before I open in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, it's a tremendous privilege we have to come before your throne of grace to bring before you uh, some requests this evening, just continued prayer for folks in this congregation who are facing some serious illness. We have uh, several who who are facing circumstances related to home care and other things that we just pray for your guidance and direction for them, their families, strengthen them. May they have a effective and significant witness as they um, t- give testimony through their application of doctrine of your grace in their lives. Father, we continue especially to remember George Meisinger, pray for his health, uh, pray if it be your will to that he will recover from his uh, cancer. We pray for those with Chafer Seminary, pray for guidance and direction for them as they make plans for the future. Father, we also pray for Jim Myers and the uh, beginning of the spring semester, for the students there at the Word of God Bible College. And, Father, we pray that you'd guide and direct them. Now, Father, we just thank you for our time and your Word. Pray that we might be responsive to what we're learning this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, many of us, at some point or another in our lives, I hope, have memorized the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. These are foundational and the sort of the positive thing is that we should memorize verses like that. It's one of the great greatest statements in Scripture related to the spiritual life. Just a review. Therefore, I beseech, or New American Standard translates it, I urge, I pointed out the last time, I exhort or I challenge, would also be good translations to get across in the first verses. Paul says, I challenge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, and by that we saw that he means the entire person, that you present. It's a term, that presentation term is a a term often used with the presentation of a sacrifice in the temple or of an offering, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Some translations say your spiritual service of worship, but the idea translated there as spiritual is a word that indicates reasonable or rational. It's a result of the premise. It's a logical result of the premise that you have trusted Christ as Savior. 
That's the challenge that he presents. Now, that verse comes at the beginning of this final section in Romans, Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. Why is this important? He's just making a transition from the more didactic section explaining the righteousness of God in relation to justification, in relation to sanctification, and in relation to God's plan for Israel. Now he begins this next section as a conclusion, as a logical conclusion from the previous 11 chapters. <clears throat> now, why is, what is he doing here? Why, what is he saying that should capture our attention? He challenges us now on the basis of everything seen in the first 11 chapters to present ourselves to God as a sacrifice to all of who we are to God. In contrast, he says, and do not be conformed to this world. Now, we studied verse 2 consist in the last couple of classes that the contrast here is not to be conformed uh, to the world that is, and I pointed out the last time that the word translated world here is not the one we might expect, which is cosmos, which often relates to the inhabitants or the organized thinking of the inhabitants of the earth, but to this word is ionos, which refers to the more of a time-based period. So it's emphasizing the way of thinking in certain time periods. Every time period thinks a certain way. The, the Germans have a word for it. It's called a zeitgeist, the spirit of time or the spirit of the age. Literally, zeit is time, geist is ghost. Okay, so zeitgeist is the spirit of the time or the spirit of the age. So we're not to be conformed or pressed into the mold of the world, but instead to be transformed. This is how we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, is to go through the the transformative process of not being pressed into the mold of the world system and the way of the world in terms of thinking, but to be transformed by the renovation of our minds. So that the emphasis here is on thinking. Now that's going to be important for what we study in the coming chapters. Many people today just have a hard time thinking about Christian, or thinking at all. I could just stop right there. Say amen and we'll all go home early. Those of you who want to see the Alabama game will be very happy. The um, <clears throat> the point is that, that people today don't think. We live in a world in America. I, I, I know most of you agree with me. Some watching may not, but we're in such a cultural slide. We have almost hit avalanche speed in terms of deterioration and self-destruction. Who would have thought? But we operate on emotion. People can't think if they're not educated. We've destroyed the ability of many people in this country to think critically because of the way in which they have been educated over the last 50 years. And many people in the church are the same way. We've dumbed down uh, the Bible. Now now you have modern translations that come out, and they're geared for the fifth grader, sixth grade reading ability. I understand the importance of that because many people can't read beyond a fifth or sixth grade level. They're doing well if they can read at that level. That's that's what's happened. But if you can't read or think beyond that level, you're not a, going to be a good citizen, and you can't handle the kind of thinking needed 
to to process what's going on culturally or if you're a believer to process it spiritually now we understand that we all have the holy spirit and we can understand the word of god and anybody can walk in off the street and i can could possibly probably name five or six people i know who've almost done that walk in off the street start coming to bible class and not have much of an education at all and and not have done very well in the education that they that they got but because they knew there was something there about the word of god and they stuck with it over a period of 3 or 4 or 5 years they assimilated a tremendous amount of information and that's important anyone can can understand the word of god and the principles and the doctrines of the word of god because of the holy spirit but you have to think you have to learn to think it can't be done on the basis of emotion and it can't be done on the basis of feeling or mysticism or intuition which is what's popular in the culture as a whole people want to respond emotionally to images this is what's been what has driven a lot of the culture the last 40 or 50 years whether it's film television uh, commercials commercials have basically trained and taught people to react to certain kinds of music uh, images certain things that are presented that that instead of thinking about it uh, critically they just react to it respond to it and are trained that way as if they're uh, as if they're just animals reacting to certain stimuli but the bible emphasizes that christianity is for thinking people now the world's going to tell you that the uh, that 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 tries to portray all christians as if they're some sort of backwood appalachian snake handlers and that no t- christians have brain cells that can uh that can recognize each other but the opposite is true christians many christians throughout the ages have been tremendous thinkers in fact if you study the great men of science up through the middle of the 19th century when they were perverted by darwin the great the, the great scientists who laid the foundation for modern science were all deeply committed christians isaac newton wrote more about theology more commentaries on scripture than he did on science and yet those kinds of facts are easily and quickly ignored and forgotten by science teachers today because they can't they can't uh, assimilate the fact that these committed christians were the scientists that made it possible for them to do what they what they do today christianity is based on thinking it's based on thoughtful reflection. The Old Testament calls it meditation, thoughtful reflection upon God's Word. In the Bible study methods class that we have on, on Sunday night, and by the way, we will resume uh, the Bible study methods class this Sunday night, uh, we, um, we emphasize this, the importance of, of thinking, the importance of observation, and right now we're in the middle of, of interpretation, but it takes a lot of time and effort. You have to learn to read. Reading, anything that's written well is written in a logical manner. And reading means you have to follow the logical development of the thought of the writer as that's been put down 
uh, down in writing. And so Christianity, more than anything else, and more than any other, quote, religion, unquote, is based on thought. It's based on the fact that God has revealed himself to us in propositional truth. Propositional truth is a technical term. I heard it for years before I ever realized what it meant. It means that God expresses himself in propositions. A proposition is like a declarative statement. A prop- the term proposition is a technical term, meaning a statement that can either be verified or falsified. It's not just sayings, but it's any statement that can be verified or falsified. A question, what's the weather doing outside, can't be proved true or false. A command, uh, go to the store, can't be proved true or false. Only a declarative statement or proposition can be declared to be true or false. Now, in order to demonstrate that it's true or false, a person has to think through all of the issues involved in that sentence. They have to understand the vocabulary. They have to understand the the, uh, logical structure that's laid down in that sentence. And when it comes to the sentences of Scripture, that's not always easy. Sometimes the Apostle Paul uses... Uh, what appear, what would appear in an English Bible to be seven, eight, nine, ten, or maybe as many as thirteen verses to express one sentence. Now, in English, they've often broken those down into sentences, but in the original Greek, it was all one sentence. And often we see verses. It's not uncommon to see a, ver, uh, a sentence of the Apostle Paul's that's two, three, or four verses long. But that's a long statement, and to understand it, you really have to stop and think. It used to drive me nuts when I was in high school. I spent many summers on the work crew at Camp Penile, and the founder's son, David Whitelock, had just graduated from Dallas Seminary at that time, and he would have an hour-long Bible study with the work crew every day, and one of the things he had us do and this was before the New American Standard was popular. This was when we were, wrestling, we were all wrestling with the King James Bible. And he would give us a daily assignment of taking two or three verses in just in, in English and then paraphrasing it, writing that out uh, so, that, so that we could understand it in our own words. And that was a real challenge for anyone with a public school education because you were never taught to think that way, to even break a sentence down, look at any two or three verses in Scripture, go home tonight and paraphrase it so your your 8-year-old kid can understand it or your 10-year-old grandchild can understand it or whatever, and you'll realize that that's not that easy to do. You really have to understand what the author is saying. Those were incredibly difficult exercises, and that's the first time that, that as a ninth grader or tenth grader that I realized that, that when you're talking about the Bible, you really have to think, and that's what Paul's getting at in verse 2. We have to renew our thinking for a purpose, and we saw this last time, the purpose of demonstrating. The word that's there for prove is a Greek verb indicating uh, demonstrating, testing something to show its value. And so we're proving that with our life. We're demonstrating the truth that God's will is good, acceptable, and sufficient. 
Many translations take that last word and translate it as as perfect. It's teleos. We're going to get into a passage, the one passage that I've always struggled with, I think I'm getting a, a, a grip on it now, is in Matthew 5 or 6, where be perfect as God is perfect. That's the only place where it appears that the word has a sense of perfection or flawlessness. But we can never be flawless as God is flawless. So whatever it appears that, that the Lord is teaching there, he's not teaching us to be uh, totally perfect or morally perfect, spiritually perfect as God is. And this word group always indicates something related to sufficiency or completion. So when we get there uh, <clears throat> in, in Sunday morning study, uh, we'll figure out where I've come in my understanding of that particular verse. But the idea ha- uh, uh, here is clearly sufficiency, that God's will is sufficient for us. But we only get there if we study it and we make that exchange in our thinking between God's way of thinking, not only the, as I pointed out the last time, not only the content of the thinking, but how God thinks, which is, uh, and how God wants us to think, which is not based on, on anything other than accepting the truth of His authority as the foundation for our thinking. Now, Paul starts this next section with those two verses. How do we think that the rest of Romans 13, or 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 relate to that? Because this is the topical preface to the next four chapters. What it, why has Paul done this? That's an important question to ask. And what he is stating here is a framework for understanding the, the basic issue in the Christian life is to get rid of all of the garbage in our soul, to get rid of all of the human viewpoint, to get rid of all the wrong ways of thinking, the ways of thinking that put rationalism first or empiricism first or mysticism first, and to replace that with a way of thinking grounded in revelational authority and building upon the scriptures as the foremost presupposition in our soul. That calls for a radical overhaul of the way we think. Now, the first thing that Paul does as he comes out of stating this challenge that we need to present our whole life as a sacrifice to God, and that just means that we're going to give our life over to serving him, and that this is primarily done by first exchanging the wrong ways of thinking in our soul for the right ways, the wrong content with the right content, and then look at verse 3. Verse 3, he says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you. Now, one of the things that we have noted many times in Bible class and one of the things that we've noted several times in our Bible study methods class is those little connective words, those conjunctions that we find at the beginning of verses, words like therefore, wherefore, because, and for, are very important. When we see that first word, for, it tells us that Paul is starting to explain the implications of what he has said before. He's giving a reason for why he has said what he has said, and he's developing it. What that means is that this shift of thinking 
uh, the shift of topic that occurs in verses 3 through 8, which gets into the topic of spiritual gifts and the topic of the relationship of every individual believer to one another and the body of Christ is fundamental to the application of the command in verses 1 and 2. I would bet that most of you have never thought about that, that when we think about spiritual gifts, often in our self-absorbed culture, we, we start thinking about, well, what spiritual gift did God give me? Spiritual gifts connect to these first two verses because spiritual gifts are enablements, enhancements, you might say, spiritual enhancements or enablements that God has given us to serve God within the body of Christ. And they're, they're important. Now we're going to go through an introduction here in just a minute, so I'll answer a lot of uh, questions that come up initially about spiritual gifts. But that's the first thing that Paul goes to when he is going to cover areas related to how we present ourselves as a living sacrifice and how we exchange divine viewpoint and flesh out the human viewpoint is it's going to start in terms of how we think about the body of Christ. And it really doesn't matter, as I reflect upon this, it really doesn't matter whether you're an ancient Greek rationalist slash Platonist or whether you're an ancient Greek Aristotelian slash empiricist, whether you're a a mystical Neoplatonist, whether you are a modern rationalist, evolutionist, nihilist, secularist, postmodernist, there's one thing that every one of these systems has in common. It's the product of the sin nature. And what have I been putting in the middle of the sin nature for the last uh, several times I've used it? The, this, this whole concept of self-absorption. From the instant of Adam's fall, the human race has been absorbed with itself. Every human being, it's all about me. That's the orientation of the sin nature. You may think it's all about you, but it's really all about me. That's the only one we care about is me, 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 me. Just think about some of the wonderful, popular magazines we have today. First of all, remember we started off with people. Then it wasn't, it was less than a decade and it was about us. And then it wasn't long before it was about self. So it's all about us, each individual. But when we come to understanding the body of Christ, there is something revolutionary and radical about the body of Christ. And that is it's no longer about each of us as an individual. Arrogance is supposed to be flushed out as part of that process of renovating the mind. It's about one another. It's about the body of Christ ministering or serving God by ministering to one another. And there are things that are said here in these coming verses that run just um, categorically opposite of our natural instinct. And it's important if we're going to function as a church, as a body of believers, to understand these principles. So he's going to talk about it, first of all, how this radical transformation impacts our relationship to others in the body of Christ. Then it's going to go on and develop that further in verses 9 through 20 in terms of how we handle different situations and different problems with different people. And we're going to see some things (coughs) indicated there 
that aren't too different from what we're studying in the Beatitudes on Sunday morning. Then he relates it to government in chapter 13. We think differently about government, even a terrible government, a tyrannical government, like the government of uh, Nero Caesar. And then he goes on to talking about other believers in chapters uh, 14 and 15. So this is very important to understanding how the doctrine that we learn, how the teaching, the instruction that we learn is to replace the self-absorbed orientation of our fallen soul to the regenerate nature, which now is supposed to be a slave to righteousness, according to Romans 6, and not a slave to the sin nature. So Romans 12.3, and Romans 12.3 continues to carry forth this theme of thinking, this theme of thinking where we are to be have our mind renewed. Now, the word for mind in verse 2 was the Greek word nous, which is the thinking part of the soul, the mentality of the soul. That is referring to the... The, uh, the, the, that part of the soul that performs a certain action. And that action is what we see talked about in verse 3. And in verse 3, we see the introduction actually of four words built on the root verb phroneo. Now, it doesn't come across in the font real well, but you notice that, that the first word in the box in the left is hooper, hooper phroneo. And I underlined in the Greek, phroneo. The root verb is on the right, in the beige box on the right, phroneo, which basically means to be wise or to think or to cogitate or any, any kind of uh, mental activity as opposed to emotive activity. And so Paul uses this. There's four words here that three highlighted on this slide, another one on the next slide, and tells us that what Paul's talking about here is this whole issue of thinking, which goes right back to what he's talking about in verse verse 2, in renewing our mind. He starts this off by saying, For, indicating an explanation, I say, through the grace given to me. Now, I pointed this out last time, that this is parallel to the phrase he uses in verse 12. It's almost an identical grammatical constru- construction. The only difference is in 12.1, we read Merc- by the mercies of God, and here it's by the grace given to me. It's the same construction, dia plus the genitive in the Greek. So it should be translated the same way with the same English preposition. Translators don't do that, but that's the point that the Holy Spirit is making Verse 12, or, or chapter 12, verse 1 should read, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. If you're going to use by, then in verse 3, you should use for by the grace given to me. Or if you want to translate it with the English preposition through, it should be the same thing in both places because the phrase is the same in the Greek, and it's indicating the intermediate means by which something is accomplished. And Paul is talking about uh, the mercy of God, and that's explained in verses, I mean, in chapters 1 through 11, and all that God has supplied us through His righteousness. The justification, sanctification, all of this has been supplied to us, and it's really what He's saying is on the basis of this and our understanding of what God has done for us on, in mercy 
and grace as the flip side of a similar concept. Grace is unmerited favor. It's grace emphasizes more the principle, whereas the word mercy indicates its personal application to individuals in difficult circumstances. So they, they represent the opposite sides of the same coin. He says, I say on the, uh, through or on, uh, <clears throat> or by the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you. In other words, he's applying it to every single believer. You can't opt out. Uh, this isn't an elective class. This is essential to spirituality and spiritual growth. I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think. He starts with the negative. Not to think of himself more highly. Now, the two... Uh, the two infinitives, English infinitives, not to think, and the next line ought to think, those two verbs are the root verb for neo in the right box at the bottom. The word translated more highly is the word on the left, hooper for neo. Hooper is a preposition that often indicates in the place of, or beyond, or more. And here, when it's added to phreneo, it has uh, various uh, ideas. Uh, one is to despise, another is to hold an opinion of oneself that is too high. It's to overthink, to think too highly of oneself, to uh, be in a state of, of, uh, of fantasy about one's own capabilities and one's own ability rather than thinking honestly and objectively about who we are and our weaknesses and our strengths, our failures and our successes, it's having an overinflated view of oneself. And so what Paul says here is a warning that we're not to think more highly of himself or ourselves than we ought to think. That's part of what it means to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We have to quit being so self-absorbed. We have to quit thinking that a spiritual life and church is all about my spiritual life and my spiritual growth. Part of our spiritual life is to serve one another and to serve one another within the framework of a local church ministry. Now, we have to think about serving one another not in the context that we often find in churches, which sometimes it's, it's not that it's bad, but sometimes it's a little superficial. As soon as you hear a sermon on serving uh, the Lord within the local church, that's followed up by an announcement that we need more prep school teachers, or we need helpers with the five-day club, or we need ushers, or we need something like that. It's that that's those kinds of things might be true, and there's nothing wrong in in a sense with that. But this is going a lot deeper in terms of our spiritual life. This is impacting who we are as individuals and how we're relating to one another in the local church. That we're here to serve each other. We're to care about each other. We're to support each other. We're to encourage each other. Now, we can't do that equally to everyone in a local church. We all have circles of friends. We have five or six people with whom we're a little more intimate and with whom we do a little more. We have five or six or seven more than that that we might be a, a little more acquainted with. 
uh, are a little less acquainted with, but we, we have spent some time with them maybe socially. And then we have others that we know because we can sit in the congregation and look across the congregation and we see people and at least we know their name. And that's one of the things that's important in a local church, and one of the reasons why we have some of the social events we do is just so we can get to know one another and not just sit there and say, oh, that's so-and-so over on the other side of the church. I- I've seen them a lot, but I don't have a clue who they are. Uh, we should take the opportunity to – we're not that large. I mean, it's it's different if you're a congregation of 500 or 1,000 or 1,500 Often you have people who come to some churches, especially large churches, because they seek anonymity. They don't want to be known. And some people are very shy. They really don't want to, they just want to come in the back door, sit down, learn the word, and go home. One of the areas that God's got to work on them is that they need to, that's as much a form of arrogance as the person who is uh, too exuberant and too hyper about getting to know everybody in the congregation. It's just another form of self-absorption. But some people are more private, other people are less private, and we have to recognize those personality differences. That runs counter to a lot of stuff that I think goes on in the practice of church in a lot of places. Having gone through seminary, I think it's a, a lot of churches, I know, I saw this in a lot of seminary professors, are a little superficial expecting everybody to sort of be the same. But the whole point of this passage is everybody's different. They're gifted in different ways. Some people are, are, are extroverts. Some people are introverts. Some people are more private. Some people are less private. We have to respect those differences, but don't let those differences become an excuse or crutch for your not being involved in the local body of Christ. Because the principles that we see in Romans chapter 12 here, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is that we're supposed to be involved in each other's lives. But the reality is that we we can't be involved equally in everybody's life. And that is often lost in in the way this is presented in some churches. And and we have to be careful because this can also become an excuse for gossip. It can become an excuse for people uh, getting, you know, uh, violating the principle of privacy and uh, and getting involved in other people's lives in, in ways that they shouldn't. But it's based on a genuine biblical love and care for one another. So the fundamental principle here is that first of all, we have to get rid of the self-absorption. We're not to think of our, ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but in contrast, we are to think soberly. Now the word translated uh, soberly here is the word sophroneo. We have phroneo again repeated. But we also have the word sophroneo, which means to be in a right mind, reasonable, objective, self-controlled, or prudent. I like the idea of being, it's, it's, uh, it's not thinking soberly in contrast to being drunk. It is thinking in an objective, balanced, temperate manner. It's understanding the issues calmly and objectively. So we are to think on the basis of truth, which means we have to know truth. 
In order to think objectively, you have to understand the issues, and we have to know truth. So we're to think objectively, and then he says, as as um, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, in this last phrase, we have to be a little careful. It's indi- the way it's in- translated. It indicates or seems to indicate that God has apportioned faith differently from one person to another. And we have to make some important observations. First of all, this is not a section dealing with, with saving faith. There are different types of faith or different categories of faith discussed in the Scripture. There is saving faith. There is faith in relationship to our ongoing spiritual life or spiritual development, which we might call uh, sanctifying faith. Uh, I talk, I use the phrase faith rest drill frequently because that describes the process of mixing our faith with the promises of God, trusting God in the midst of a difficult situation. And so we're going to put our faith in his promise and his word, and we're going to rest or relax in terms of God's control, God's provision for the situation or circumstance. Faith is also listed in 1 Corinthians 12 as a spiritual gift. That would be a further enhancement of everyone's ability simply to trust God. But one of the things that we see here is that the context, again, is in terms of spiritual gifts. We know that this isn't uh, just by a process of elimination, he's not talking about saving faith. So he's talking about faith in relation to something. The context tells us that this is faith in relation t- to the spiritual gifts that God has given us, faith in relation to using the spiritual gifts that God has given us. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. That indicates that people have different degrees of giftedness. Some people have the gift of uh, a pastor-teacher in uh, to a large measure. Some people have it to a small measure. Some people have it to a small measure, and maybe the way in which they use that is in a uh, in a Sunday school class or something of that nature. I know that I have pastored many churches, and most of the churches that I have been involved in have had 200 or less people in them. I had a high school Sunday school teacher that some of you knew by the name of Dick Saman who uh, went to First Baptist and taught a Sunday school class of about six or 800 people, and it was broadcast on KHCB here in Houston every Sunday morning. He had a Sunday school class that was larger than many churches, many many congregations and many pastors that I know. But he wasn't the pastor of the church. He was, but he functioned as a pastor. He probably had the gift of pastor teacher. He certainly had the gift of gab. And if you know Dick, know that uh, he was uh, quite humorous and had a great great ability to communicate. But um, but. Everybody has a diff- is given a spiritual gift to a different measure. Some people have a great degree of, of, um, of, of mercy. Some people not so much. I remember taking a, one of those, uh, back in the seventies. It's, it's the application of psychology to Christian life, which is 
uh, not valid in my opinion, but they were always coming out with these little tests. Take this 50-question test, and you'll figure out what your spiritual gift is. And you'll find out that two or three of them are really, uh, you know, that you, one or two gifts are probably your major area of giftedness, and then one or two aren't. And, um, of course, that's off, those things are flawed because they often reflect what you're thinking about yourself at the time. And so there's all kinds of different things. But people have different gifts, different abilities to different degrees. And the issue in verse 6 is that uh, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. So that this is an, this last line of, of utilizing our gift according to the proportion of our faith. So that is what is talked about in context here is that, that we are to apply or utilize our spiritual gift in relation to the proportion of our faith, which at, if you're a baby Christian, that's going to be a baby or small portion of faith. If it, you're uh, more mature, then you've grown in your faith and in your knowledge of doctrine and in your ability, and you'll use your gift in a in a greater way. Uh, but that's the idea here: is serving Christ in proportion to your uh, to your faith. So God has given each one a gift, and then we use that in proportion to our faith. Verse uh, four, we read. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. We're different. We're not all supposed to be the same. What's interesting is we have a tendency, all of us do, to a little little hero worship and a little personality worship. But what God's emphasizing is that we're all different. We don't imitate one another in some ways. We imitate in terms of character but not in terms of personality or giftedness. We're each different, and we need to function as God has intended each of us to function within the body of Christ. Verse 5, he says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ. That's a challenge for people in a culture that has valued rugged individualism. Rugged individualism is an American character value. We appreciate that. We flaunt it. But when it comes to the body of Christ, that is not a primary virtue. The primary virtue is we're to serve one another, and we're one in the body of Christ. It's not about each individual. It's about the body of Christ serving one another. So Paul says, we being many are one body of Christ. And then he makes a difficult statement. He says, and everyone members of one another. There's a interdependency among believers in the body of Christ. We're not all running out on our own, depending on our own strengths and our own abilities exalting ourselves. We're not supposed to think too highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We have a mutual dependency in the body of Christ because some people can't teach. They're dependent on those who do teach to come to a better understanding of the word. Some people don't have the gift of mercy, 
And so they're dependent upon others who have the gift of mercy to serve in terms of areas of uh, visiting homes where people are shut-ins, where people uh, visiting homes where people are in tough uh, health situations, visiting the hospital. Uh, that's where they exercise their spiritual gift and where it's important for them to exercise their gift. Some people have the gift of giving, and it's very important for them to utilize that gift of giving. Uh, whatever the spiritual gift is, you can find Scripture passages that talk about everyone having a responsibility in that area. Every believer is supposed to give, but we can really learn about giving by watching somebody who has a spiritual gift and learning that, wow, we should be giving like they're giving. Or somebody who's teaching and really is gifted in teaching, we can learn from them and it challenges us to improve the quality of our own teaching whenever we're called upon uh, to teach. Just because you don't have the gift of teaching doesn't mean you shouldn't teach. Just because you don't have the gift of giving doesn't mean you shouldn't give. None of us would say, well, I'm not going to witness to anybody because I don't have the gift of evangelism. We know how absurd that is, but functionally, many of us are very absurd. We act like, well, that's not my spiritual gift, so I don't do it. No, we learn in the body of Christ from and from observing those who have those gifts so that we can improve in our own application in those areas. Well, that brings us to what the Scripture teaches about spiritual gifts and going through an introduction. We'll start this this evening. First of all, let's get a definition of a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is a talent, an ability, or an aptitude that is sovereignly bestowed on every believer in the church, in the church age, by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. It's not something you get later on. In the, in the early church, they got it at the instant of salvation. It's related to the baptism by the Holy Spirit, as Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So you, it's different from natural talents. Now, I have a theory that God often uses or enhances our natural talents with a spiritual giftedness. There are men and women who are gifted teachers, and they were gifted teachers before they were ever saved. But after they're saved, they now have a spiritual enhancement to that gift that functions in the spiritual realm. The same thing can be said about about uh, other areas of, uh, <coughs> of giftedness, of service, of administration, management, these kinds of things. Uh, it may be that your spiritual gift is a little different from your natural talent, but, but somehow God takes our natural talents and abilities, and when we're saved, he gives us these spiritual enhancements that work and intersect with our natural talents. So... The manifestation of these gifts are going to be different from person to person. And if you think about it, the, one, the gift you probably are most exposed to and that you see are people, pastors who have the gift of pastor-teacher. And you see a lot of different personalities. I have a um, colleague, I've, years ago I knew him much better, I haven't seen him in years, uh, who's a pastor of a church out at Bible church out in Katy. And he went through a, his, when he was in his early probably mid-30s, his wife had a series of strokes. And 
it was an extremely difficult situation. lasted about 12 or 13 years. They were very dependent upon many members of the congregation just helping to be caregivers. But if you had a problem in your life and you started talking to him about that problem, it just like every pore in his body just sort of oozed compassion. You knew this guy really had walked in, in tough shoes and he walked in your tough shoes. And you knew that he understood. Some people you talk to about your problems and it's like they have a machine gun of five doctrines they throw at you and, and they've never truly gone through difficult times, it seems, and they don't really have a genuine biblical, uh, identification to come alongside someone who's going through difficult times. That doesn't mean, and, and see, some people get the wrong idea of compassion. That doesn't mean you legitimize, legitimize their weaknesses when they're going through a tough time. But you knew with him that that was true. He was a good teacher, but his teaching came across in an extremely compassionate manner. I had another pastor friend of mine who was in business for about 15 years, uh, was an investment banker. And he thought in a very cold, calculated manner, and his personality, someone once described, is trying to snuggle up to a porcupine. He was very much different from the other. Both were excellent teachers, but because of their personalities and other talents, how that gift came across or how that gift was utilized was very different. No two pastors are going to, no two, whatever the spiritual gift is, are going to express themselves the same way because of different measures of the gift as well as different personalities and different backgrounds. But every believer is given a talent, ability, or an aptitude at the instant of salvation by God the Holy Spirit and it's for the purpose of serving one another in the body of Christ. I had somebody tell me one time, say, well, you know, I don't really go to, I just go to church and leave. I'm using my spiritual gift at work. I use my spiritual gift uh, with others in the family. No, this is for, you use your spiritual gift for its purpose, which is to minister to the body of Christ in the local church you're in, not your family, not your co-workers, not the people in your neighborhood. It's for service within the body of Christ. And that's the emphasis in passages such as uh, Romans 12, 6 through 8, which we'll go through here, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, uh, 10 and 11, or 11 and 12, Hebrews 2, 4. In, Bibli- in terms of biblical terminology, there's a couple of different terms that are used. Uh, the term pneumaticon emphasizes the source and the nature of the gifts, that they're related to the Holy Spirit who gives this, and it's related to our spiritual life, our spiritual relationship with God, and it relates to the spiritual life of the believer. The other, another term that's used is charisma, which emphasizes the grace nature of the gifts. From The, the root is charis, which is the Greek word for grace, that God in his sovereignty, freely bestows these abilities on us. It's not based on any merit. Uh, we haven't earned these things. They're given uh, at the instant of salvation. And as I pointed out already, in some believers it may enhance a natural ability, talent, or inclination. In others it might not. And then we have a third term, marismas, 
which emphasizes a distribution or apportionment so that there, it's not all the same. Not If you have the spirit, any spiritual gift, it's not going to be the same or to the same degree as perhaps somebody else. For example, in Hebrews 2.4, we read, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts. That's how it's normally translated. It's understood, the, the Greek word, though, is marismos. It's understood to relate to spiritual gifts, but it's not pneumaticon or charisma, which is what you would normally expect for the word gifts. It's marismos, divisions or distinctions of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, makes distinctions among members in the body of Christ according to his own will. So spiritual gifts are distributed on the basis of the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. Now, a third question, or third point, which is important, is that spiritual gifts are unique to the church age. We didn't have spiritual gifts in the Old Testament. You had giftedness in terms of the God gave some the ability to prophesy, You had some who had the ability to lead, but they're never called spiritual gifts. This is something that is distinct to the body of Christ. So don't take something in the body of Christ and read it over into something else. Now, this is where this is important is, uh, let me just read the rest of it. No gifts are given prior to the day of Pentecost. Why? There's no baptism of the Holy Spirit prior to the day of Pentecost. So you didn't have any spiritual gifts. There won't be any spiritual gifts given after the rapture of the church. Now, why is this important? Whenever we, I talk about the cessation of the sign gifts, the cessation of prophecy, knowledge, and tongues, that's clearly what, what 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, and we'll get into that probably later on. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians 13, we're told that prophecy, tongues, and knowledge Prophecy and knowledge will cease, I mean, will will be abolished, and tongues will cease. Now, if you read through the passage and deal with it, and I've got a paper I I presented, I I had published in the Conservative Theological Society uh, about 10 or 12 years ago, and I revised it slightly for a presentation at the uh, Dispensational Hermeneutic Study Group meeting at uh, Baptist Bible Seminary uh, this last September. But it's very clear from the verbiage in the passage that it's talking about two two periods within the church age, that before the canon of Scripture is completed, the church, the body of Christ, was dependent upon people who had these revelational-type spiritual gifts for new revelation because they didn't have the New Testament yet. Uh, When you think about it, up to the period of about 60, A.D. 60, only about... A uh, half to two-thirds, not quite two-thirds, of the New Testament was written by AD 60. You're 30 years from the death of Christ, and less than half, probably less than half, maybe a little bit more, of the New Testament's been written. They were dependent upon new revelation from God through the apostles, the prophets, and others who had these kinds of revelatory gifts. But once the canon of Scripture was given, it was no longer necessary for God to communicate that way. And at the end of, of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, you have this contrast between now and then. Now is now in that period of time, that transitional period, up through A.D. 70 to A.D. 90 when these gifts ended. 
After that, there was a completed canon of Scripture, and those gifts uh, were no longer necessary, and those gifts were were ended. Well, whenever I teach that, and it happened this last year up in Pennsylvania, somebody always says, well, what about the tribulation period? There are prophets in the tribulation period. How can you say the gift of prophecy ended? I said, well, wait a minute. The, tr- the, the tribulation period is not part of the church age. By definition, that's not a spiritual gift any more than the gift of prophecy in the Old Testament was a spiritual gift. We're talking about church age gifts, and we have to restrict it that way. So spiritual gifts are unique to the church age. No spiritual gifts after the rapture, no spiritual gifts before the day of Pentecost. So we're going to stop there. That's the first three points. We'll come back and continue this next time as a prelude to understanding what's going on in verses 3 to 8 in Romans chapter 12. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening. We're thankful that God the Holy Spirit has gifted each one of us. It doesn't really matter whether we know what the gift is or not. The issue is to serve you. And as we serve you and as we mature, it will become evident to us and to others the areas in which you have enhanced our ability to serve the body of Christ. And as we do that, we will become more effective. But the first and foundational value is that we need to put serving you first. Understand the principle of Romans 12.2, not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We make the Word of God our priority, and as we do that, and as the Holy Spirit matures us, we will serve you and we will demonstrate our strengths, our abilities given to us by the Holy Spirit in that process. But, Father, we just pray that you would help us to fulfill our desire, which is to be spiritually transformed through the understanding of your Word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.